Chapter thirty nine, part one of Deerbrook. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Deerbrook by Harriet Martineau. Chapter thirty nine, part one. The Long Nights. Almost as soon as Hope had left the house, Sidney Gray arrived, looking full of importance. He took care to shut the door before he would tell his errand. His mother had been obliged to trust him for want of another messenger, and he delivered his message with a little of the parade of mystery he had derived from her. Mr. Gray's family had become uneasy about his returning from the markets in the evening, since robberies had become so frequent as they now were, and the days so short and had at length persuaded him to sleep at the more distant market-towns he had to visit, and return the next morning from Blickley. He could get home before the evening closed in, but on two days in the week he was to remain out all night. When he had agreed to this, his family had applauded him and felt satisfied. But as the evening drew on, on occasion of his first absence, Mrs. Gray and Sophia had grown nervous on their own account, they recalled story after story which they had lately heard of robberies at several solitary houses in the country round and though their house was not solitary they could not reconcile themselves to going to rest without the comfort of knowing that there was as usual a strong man on their premises if they had been aware how many strong men there were sometimes on their premises at night they would not have been satisfied with having one within their walls not having been informed, however, how cleverly their dogs were silenced, how much poached game was divided under the shelter of their stacks of deals, and what dexterous abstractions were at such times made from the store of corn in their granaries and coal in their lighters, they proposed nothing further than to beg the favor of Mr. Hope that he would take a bed in their house for this one night. They dared not engage any of the men from the yards to defend them. They had not Mr. Gray's leave and he might not be pleased if they showed any fear to their own servants but it would be the greatest comfort if mr hope would come as if to supper and stay the night the spare room was ready and mrs gray hoped he would not object to leaving his family just for once mr gray intended to do the same thing twice a week till the days should lengthen and the roads become safer though sydney made the most of his message he declared himself not thoroughly pleased with it they might have trusted me to take care of them said he if they had just let me have my father's pistols come come sydney do not talk of pistols said hester who did not relish any part of the affair he would not talk of them if he thought they were likely to be wanted observed margaret likely when were they ever more likely to be wanted i should like to know did you hear what happened at the russell taylors last night no and we do not wish to hear do not tell us any horrible stories, unless you mean my husband to stay at home to-night. Oh, you must just hear this, because it ended well. That is, nobody was killed. Mr. Walcott told Sophia all about it this morning, and it was partly that which made her so anxious to have someone sleep in their house to-night. Well, then, do not tell us, or you will make us anxious for the same thing. What would your mother say if you were to carry home word that mr hope could not come that his family dare not part with him oh then she must let me have my father's pistols and watch for the fellows if they came about our windows as they did about the russell taylors how i would let fly among them they came rapping at the shutters at two this morning and when mr taylor looked out from his bedroom above 
They said they would not trouble themselves to get in, if he would throw out his money. And did he? Yes, they raised a hat upon a pole, and he put in four or five pounds. All he had in the house, he told them. So they went away, but none of the family thought of going to bed again. I dare say not, and what sort of thieves are these supposed to be? They set about their businesses very oddly. Not like London thieves, said Sidney, consequentially, as if he knew all about London thieves. They are the distressed country people, no doubt, such as would no more think of standing a second shot for my pistol than of keeping the straits of thermoply. Look here, he continued, showing the end of a pistol which peeped from a pocket inside his coat. Here's a thing that will put such gentry into a fine taking. Pray, is that pistol loaded? inquired Hester, pressing her infant to her. To be sure, what is the use of a pistol if it is not loaded? It might as well be in the shop as in my pocket, then. Look at her, cousin Margaret. If she is not in as great a fright as the cowardly thieves, why, cousin Hester, don't you see, if this pistol went off, it would not shoot you or the baby. It would go straight through me. That is a great comfort, but I had rather you would go away. You and your pistol. Pray, does your mother know that you carry one? No, mind you don't tell her. I trust you not to tell her. Remember, I would not have told you if I had not felt sure of you. You had better not have felt sure of us, however. We will not tell your mother, but my husband will tell Mr. Gray tomorrow, when he comes home. If he chooses that you should carry loaded pistols about, there will be no harm done. I have a great mind to say I will shoot you if you tell, cried Sidney, presenting the pistol with a grand air. But he saw that he made his cousins really uneasy, and he laid it down on the table, offering to leave it with them for the night. If they thought it would make him feel any safer, there were plenty more at home. Thank you, said Margaret, but I believe we are more afraid of loaded pistols than of thieves. The sooner you will take it away, the better. You can go now, presently, for here comes my brother. Sidney quickly pocketed his pistol. Hope agreed to go, and promised to be at Mr. Gray's supper by nine o'clock. Margaret was incessantly thinking of Maria in these long evenings, when alarms of one kind or another were all abroad. She now thought she would go with Sidney, and spend an hour or two with Maria. Returning by the home, her brother would be going to the Grays. Maria's landlord would see her home, no doubt. She found her friend busy with book and needle, and as well in health as usual, but obviously somewhat moved by the dismal stories which had travelled from mouth to mouth through Deerbrook during the day. It seemed hardly right that any person in delicate health should be lonely at such a time, and it occurred to Margaret that her friend might like to go home with her, and occupy the bed which was this night to spare. Maria thankfully accepted the offer, and let Margaret put up her little bundle for her. The farrier escorted them to the steps of the corner-house, and then left them. The door was half open, as Morris was talking with someone on the mat in the hall. An extremely tall woman with a crying baby in her arms made way for the ladies, not by going out of the house, but by stepping further into the hall. "'Morris, had you not better shut the door?' said Margaret. "'The wind blows in so. It is enough to chill the whole house.' But Morris held the door open, rather wider than before. "'So the gentleman is not at home,' said the tall woman, gruffly. If I come again in an hour with my poor baby, will he be at home then? Is my brother gone, Morris? Yes, miss, three minutes ago. Then he will not be back in an hour. We do not expect him. This good woman had better go to Mr. Walcott, ma'am. As I have been telling her, there is no doubt he is at home. 
"'I could wait here till the gentleman comes home,' said the tall woman, "'and so get the first advice for my poor baby.' "'Tis very ill, ma'am. "'Better go to Mr. Walcott,' persisted Morris. "'Or to my brother and Mr. Grace,' said Margaret, "'unwilling to lose the chance of a new patient for Edward, "'and thinking his advice better for the child's sake than Mr. Walcott's.' "'It is far the readiest way to go to Mr. Walcott's,' declared Maria, "'whose arm Margaret felt to tremble within her own. "'I believe you are right,' said Margaret. "'You had better not waste any more time here, good woman. "'It may make all the difference to your child.' "'If you would let me wait till the gentleman comes home,' said the tall woman. "'Impossible. It is too late to-night for patients to wait. "'This lady's landlord, without there, will show you the way to Mr. Walcott's. "'Call him Morris.' Morris went out upon the steps, but the tall woman passed her, and was gone. Morris stepped in briskly, and put up the chain. "'You are very ready to send a new patient to Mr. Walcott, Morris,' said Margaret, smiling. "'I had a fancy that it was a sort of patient that my master would not be the better for,' replied Morris. "'I did not like the looks of the person.' "'Nor I,' said Maria. The drawing-room door was heard to open, and Morris put her finger on her lips, Hester had been alone nearly ten minutes. She was growing nervous, and wanted to know what all this talking in the hall was about. She was told that Mr. Hope had been inquired for about a sick baby, and the rest of the disclosures went to the account of Maria's unexpected arrival. Hester welcomed Maria kindly, ordered up the cold pheasant and the wine, and then, leaving the friends to enjoy themselves over the fire, retired to rest. Morris was desired to go, too, as she still slept in her mistress's room not to keep early hours, since in addition to her laborers of the day, she was at the baby's call in the night. Margaret would see her friend to her room. Morris must not remain upon their account. How comfortable this is, cried Maria in a gleeful tone, as she looked round upon the crackling fire, the tray, the wine, and her companion. How unlooked for, to pass a whole evening and night without being afraid of anything. What an omission from you, that you are afraid of something every night. That is just the plain truth. When I used to read about the horrors of living in a solitary house in the country, I little thought how much of the same terror I should feel from living solitary in a house in a village. You wonder what could happen to me, I dare say, and perhaps it would not be very easy to suppose any peril which would stand examination. I was going to say that you and we are particularly safe from being so poor that there is no inducement to rob us. We and you have neither money nor jewels nor plate that can tempt thieves, for our Jew forks and spoons are hardly worth breaking into a house for. People who want bread, however, may think it worth while to break in for that, and while our thieves are this sort of people, and not the London gentry whom Sydney is so fond of talking of, it may be enough that gentlemen and ladies live in houses to make the starving suppose that they shall find something valuable there. They would soon learn better if they came here. I doubt whether, when you and I have done our supper, they would find anything to eat. But how do you show your terrors? I should like to know. Do you scream? I never screamed in my life, as far as I remember. Screaming appears to me the most unnatural of human sounds. I never felt the slightest inclination to express myself in that matter. Nor I, but I never said so, because I thought no one would believe me. No, the true mood for these doleful winter nights is to sit trying to read, but never able to fix her attention for five minutes, for some odd noise or another, and yet it is almost worse to hear nothing but a cinder falling on the hearth now and then, startling you like a pistol shot, than it seems as if somebody was opening the shutter outside, 
and then tapping at the window. I have got so into the habit of looking at the window at night, expecting to see a face squeezed flat against the pane, that I have yielded up my credit to myself, and actually have the blinds drawn down when the outside shutters are closed. How glad I am to find you are no braver than the rest of us. No, do not be glad. It is very painful. Night after night, every step clinks or cranches in the pharaoh's yard. You know, this ought to be a comfort, but sometimes I cannot clearly tell where the sound comes from. More than once lately, I have fancied it was behind me, and have turned around in a greater hurry than you would think I could use. My rooms are a good way from the rest of the house. You remember the length of the passage between. I do not like disturbing the family in the evenings, but I have been selfish enough to ring once or twice this week, without any sufficient reason, just for the sake of a sight of my landlady. A very sufficient reason, but I had no idea of all this from you. You have heard me say some fine things about the value of time to me, about the blessings of my long evenings, for all that true as it is. I have got into the way of going to bed soon after ten, just because I know everyone else in the house is in bed, and I do not like to be the only person up. That is the reason why you are looking so well, notwithstanding all these terrors. But, Maria, what has become of your bravery? It is just where it was. I am no more afraid than I used to be of evils, which may be met with a mature mind, and just as much afraid as ever of those which terrified my childhood. Our baby shall never be afraid of anything, asserted Margaret. But, Maria, something must be done for your relief. That is just what I hoped and expected, you would say, and the reason why I exposed myself to you. Why do not the Greys offer you a room there for the winter? That seems the simplest and more obvious plan. It is not convenient. How should that be? The bed would have to be uncovered, you know, and the mahogany washstand might be splashed. They can get a room ready for a guest, to relieve their own fears, but not yours. Can nothing be done about it? Not unless the Rollins should take in Mr. Walcott, because he is afraid to live alone. In such case, the Greys would take me in for the same reason. But that will not be so, Margaret. I will ask you plainly, and you will answer as plainly. Could you, without too much pain, trouble, and inconvenience, spend an evening or two a week with me, just till this panic is past? If you could put it in my power to be always looking forward to an evening of relief, it would break the sense of solitude, and make all the difference to me. I see the selfishness of this, but I really think it is better to own my weakness than to struggle uselessly against it any longer. I could do that, should like, of all things, to do it until Morris goes, but that will be so soon. Morris, where is she going? Margaret related this piece of domestic news, too private to be told to anyone else till the last moment. Maria forgot her own troubles, or despised them as she listened, so grieved was she for her friends, including Morris. Margaret was not very sorry on Morris's own account. Morris wanted rest, an easier place. She had had too much upon her for some time past. What, then, will you have when she is gone? If I have work enough to drive all thought out of my head, I shall be thankful. Meantime, I will bestow my best wit upon your case. I am ashamed of my case already. While sitting in all this comfort here, I can hardly believe in my own tremors. If no earlier date than last night, come, let us draw to the fire. I hope we shall not end with sitting up all night, but I feel as if I should like it very much. Margaret stirred up a blaze and put out the candles. No economy was now beneath her care. 
as she took her seat beside her friend, she said, "'Maria, did you ever know any place so dull and dismal as Deerbrook is now? It is not enough to make any heart as heavy as the fortunes of the place. Even the little that I see of it, in going to and from the greys, looks sad enough. You see the outskirts, which I suppose are worse still.' The very air feels so heavy to breathe. The cottages, and even the better houses, appear to my eyes damp and weather-stained on the outside, and silent within. The children sit shivering on the thresholds, do not they, instead of shouting at their play, as they did. Everyone looks discontented and complains, the poor of want of bread, and everyone else of hard times, and all manner of woes that no one ever hears of in prosperous seasons. Mr. James says the actions for trespass are beyond all example. Mr. Tucker declares his dog, that died the other day, was poisoned, and I never pass the green, but the women are even quarreling for precedence at the pump. I have witnessed some of this, but not all, and neither, I suspect, have you, Margaret, though you think you have. We see the affairs of the world in shadow, you know, when our own hearts are sad." My heart is not so sad as you think. You do not believe me, but that is because you do not believe what I am sure of, that he is not to blame for anything that has happened, that at least he has only been mistaken, that there has been no fickleness, no selfishness in him. I cannot speak of this, even to you, Maria. If it were not a duty to him, you must not be left to suppose from my silence that he is to blame, as you think he is. I suffer from no sense of injury from him. I got over that long ago. Maria would not say, as she thought. You had to get over it, then. It makes me very unhappy to think how he is suffering, how much more he has to bear than I, so much more than the separation and the blank. He cannot trust me as I trusted him, and that is indeed to be without consolation. Do men ever trust as women do? Yes, Edward does. If he were to go to India for twenty years, he would know as certainly as I should, that Hester would be widowed in every thought till his return, and the time will come when Philip will know this as certainly of me. It is but a little while yet that I have waited, Maria, but it does sometimes seem a weary waiting. Maria took her friend's hand, in token of the sympathy she could not speak, so much of hopelessness was there mingled with it. I know you and others think that this waiting is to go on for ever. No, love, not so, or that a certainty, which is even worse, will come some day. But it will be otherwise. His love can no more be quenched or alienated by the slanders of a wicked woman than the sum can be put out by an eclipse, or sent to enlighten another world, leaving us mourning. You judge by your own soul, Margaret, and that should be a faithful guide. You judge him by your own soul, and how much by this, she added with a smile, fixing her eyes on the turquoise ring, which was Philip's gift, and which, safely guarded, was on a finger of the hand she held. End of chapter 39, part 1